Matthew 26, and we're looking at the elements of worship, and we've come, uh, we're in the middle of the, uh, we're discussing the Lord's Supper. Uh, we came to the sacraments, and now I'm still in the Lord's Supper. I'll talk about the Lord's Supper the rest of today. And I'm going to read Matthew 26, starting at verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. And the other accounts say, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and the article is in the original, the cup, singular, and gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. Okay, so he gave it to them, and what do they do? There's one cup. They passed it around. For this is my blood of the, of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, which would have been Psalm 18, probably, or I mean 118, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now we're, we were at point number five. We're looking at the Lord's Supper. And then we'll look at baptism, Lord willing, next week, hopefully. Uh, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we do not physically or carnally feed on the literal body and blood of Jesus. And that would be the doctrines there would be the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, where the priest uh, says some, you know, abacadabra and the host turns into the actual flesh of Christ and the wine turns into the actual blood of Jesus. They believe that. Now, it, it appears as bread, it appears as wine, but it's actually the real flesh, physical flesh of his body and his blood. That's a transubstantiation. The, the uh, Lutherans have their own heresy called consubstantiation, and and that's Martin Luther. He says the the true elements of the of the flesh of Christ and the true elements of the real blood of Christ, the physical, are in, with, and under. And that's based on sacramentalism. This idea that you have to have the physical stuff to get the to get the uh, efficacy out of it. <clears throat> But Jesus and his saving work is present to us spiritually, and by faith we appropriate his person and work. I didn't go into detail about Calvin, so Calvin's got a unique view that you're mystically transported to the throne room of God during the Holy Supper and are somehow present with him, his real body and real blood in heaven, because that's where he is. And that's the only way to have the real presence uh, without denying the true humanity of Christ, because transubstantiation and consubstantiation, Jesus has a real human body. Now, it's glorified, but it's not infinite. It's not eternal. You can't have Jesus all over the world and uh, in a million different churches at the same time and have the true humanity of Christ. So Calvin came up with that clever view to try to find a path between Zwingli and between Luther, and uh, it didn't quite work, although it's still held to, by some people. The Holy Supper is defined and conducted according to the word, is used by the Holy Spirit in the same way as the Word itself. The Eucharist sets forth the central truths of redemption in a sensuous, vivid manner and emphasizes the benefits of redemption, that the benefits of redemption are applied by the living, glorified Savior who in his spiritual presence communes with us. So once again, our communion with Jesus is not something new, but is signified, confirmed, and strengthened in the Holy Supper. That's the Reformed view. Confession of faith, larger catechism. 
by looking at the supper biblically, we can avoid the high church view that it is an automatic, special, mystical channel of grace. In this idea of, uh, what is it, ex opere uh, operato, uh, this idea that works automatically, like, uh, like an iron gets hot, and if you touch it, you burn your skin. Uh, that's the Romanist view, and that's, to a certain extent, sacramentalist view. This communion is not a communion with Christ's glorified body and blood as a substantial isolated reality, <clears throat> but a communion with him in his offering and true body and blood with him who, has become, who had become flesh and was crucified in history and whose flesh is now in heaven. So where's Jesus at? His body. Now, obviously he's God. He's everywhere. But where's Jesus at? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He, he can, his physical body, his true humanity, can only be in one place at the same, one time. So we feast on him spiritually. <clears throat> the presence which grounds us receiving is only a presence to our faith of Christ's body and blood. Hence, we construe the confession to mean by the receiving and feeding precisely the spiritual actions of faith in Christ as our Redeemer, and on his body slain, his blood poured out as the steps of his atoning work, so that the thing which the soul actually, uh, so that that is what the soul actually embraces at the Lord's Supper. We're embracing his redemptive work. Yes, we're embracing the whole Christ, but we're, re we're embracing his redemptive work. We're not feeding on his literal flesh and his literal blood. It's not the corporeal substance of the slain body and shed blood, but the redeeming virtue that we're feasting on. And that just makes sense logically and, of course, exegetically. <clears throat> the Christians who come to the table have a responsibility to examine themselves. Oh, here we go. The Lord's Supper, this, and I've labeled this the proper recipients. Who's the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper? Should we give it to infants and little toddlers who don't know what's going on? Or is it for communicant members, what the Reformed people call communicant members, or even the ancient church used that term. Um, the Lord's Supper is for people who are communicant members of the Christian church. Such people have publicly professed faith in Christ. They've been baptized in the name of the triune God and become members of a local Orthodox Bible-believing church. That's what a communicant member is. When you're baptized as a baby, because you're in the covenant, you're a member of the church. But you're not a communicant member yet until you confess Christ publicly. The Holy Supper is to be restricted to members in good standing. That is, church members who are not backslidden and living in habitual or scandalous sin. Consequently, the pastor and elders have a responsibility to fence the table in order to restrict the table from unbelievers and rebellious, unrepentant Christians. You got somebody in your church and they're committing adultery, or, or you got somebody who's not married and they're fornicating or whatever. They shouldn't go to the table. They shouldn't be allowed to come to the table. Now, if it's known, if it's known, there's nothing you can do about it. If people, if are, are members in good standing and you don't know, but if you find out, you have to tell them you can't come to the table. <coughs> the fencing of the table includes the uh, includes the exclusion of those who hold to heretical scandalous or serious errors that are incompatible with a credible profession of faith. Roman Catholicism, Arminianism or semi-Pelagianism, modernism or Christian liberalism, the federal vision, Unitarianism, the heretics. 
you have to fence the table. People have, people have this view that, well, uh, sins against other people are really bad. But heresy, that's not a big deal. No, they're both really bad. And heresy is called the sin of the flesh by Paul in the book of Galatians. The Presbyterians of the First and Second Reformations and, and far beyond practice what is called closed communion. That is, those professing Christians who rejected the covenant of Reformation and the attainments thereof were denied the Holy Supper because even though they may be saved, they were both confessing and walking disorderly. They were refusing to keep the testimony of the Reformation. That is true biblical Christianity. Just, just a, a historical footnote. Uh, very few people practice close communion today. Probably the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland and maybe the Free Church continuing, I'm not sure. But uh, certainly the RPCNA does not. In fact, we had somebody in the church who uh, uh, we were forced to transfer to a liberal church because it was argued, well, they're Trinitarian. Well, no, they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe in Christ. <clears throat> now, the Christians who come to the table have a responsibility to examine themselves, especially, and we looked at this earlier, regarding their relationship and treatment of other Christians. Someone who is gossiping and mistreating other Christians, slander, gossip, stealing, you, know, you borrow the lawnmower, you don't give it back, things like that, um, should repent before he or she comes to the Holy Supper. And um, see Matthew five twenty three to twenty four, where Jesus talks about, look, you know, you you got something against your brother, or he's got something against you. You get it sorted out before you bring your offering. You don't come to the Holy Supper with unrepentant sin. Our relationships with other Christians in the body of Christ, reflecting the love, compassion, concern, and desire to edify our brothers, like the Lord, whom we meet at the table in a special way, and whom. We represent. A genuine repentance is not partial, haphazard, or surface only. All known sins must be plucked out by the root and replaced with love and service toward God and man. Psalm 119.59 I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. And that's just common sense. You come to the Holy Supper and you come as a repentant believer. You don't come as an unrepentant believer. You don't come as a covenant breaker, you come as a covenant keeper. We talked about the valid, the, the, it's an oath with covenant sanctions if you don't keep your covenant responsibilities. Another problem, and this is another problem that we find in some of the really strict denominations that must be avoided at the Holy Supper is a reluctance, the reluctance and even refusal of weak, doubting Christians to come to the table. <coughs> Believers need to confess their sins every day. And we're still all still guilty of falling short, obviously. That's true of everyone. And all serious professors know that they are deficient in many ways and do not serve the Lord as effectively and sincerely and deeply as they the regenerated consciousness would like. And Paul talks about that in Romans 7, 14 to 25. We can all do better. We should all do better. And Christ tells us we have to confess our sins every single day. Nevertheless, those who are sensitive to their infirmities and bewail their state of progress must still come and receive strength. <clears throat> the Lord suffers for weak Christians. People have weak faith. There's no such thing as a sinless Christian. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian. We're all sinners. So if you're weak and feeble, still come. In the larger catechism, I put, should have put it in here. The larger catechism is a great 
think about that in there. Christians must avoid a morbid introspectionism or a legalistic mindset or a kind of perfectionist attitude that would keep us from sacramentally feeding on Christ. We are saved solely by grace, and it is only because of the Savior's removal of all of our guilt and the imputation of his perfect righteousness that we can come. I know in some of the really strict churches, some of the, you know, more the Free Presbyterian Church and uh, Beakey's group, which tend to be a little legalistic on certain things, uh, you know, over half the church doesn't come to communion because they don't think they're good enough. And the truth is, none of us are good enough. We come because of the, imputa the impute imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you stare at your belly button all the time, you'll doubt your salvation. You'll never come. So, you know, you have to avoid a morbid introspectionism. That destroyed the Puritans. The Puritans were great, and everybody loves to talk about how great the Puritans were. But the Puritans got so strict and so tough on everything that they lost their children and their grandchildren. Because they said, well, you know, it's just impossible to be a real solid Christian. And that's not true. We're saved by Christ. We're saved by grace. If we do not focus our faith on Christ and his righteousness, and instead obsessively dwell on our own subjective state in an unhealthy, unbiblical manner, we will neglect this blessed ordinance. Now, I bring that up because that's true of some people. Now, most people are in the other direction, where they, they may be leading extremely uh, sloppy uh, lives with all kinds of sins, and they don't examine themselves. But there are people who are ultra-sensitive. And then we come to this final question we'll look at this afternoon. What about pedo communion? What about pedo communion? Um, it's something that's becoming more popular. It's especially popular among, uh, well, it's practiced by pretty much all the federal visionists. And it was uh, popularized by James Jordan and people, Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart wrote a little book. Uh, what was it? Daddy, called, I think, Daddy, Why Am I Excommunicated? <laughs> in, uh, back in the, I think it was the 90s. might have been the 80s. But they've, they've popularized this in, uh, in theonomous circles and in especially federal vision circles. And it's grown in popularity in the OPC and the PCA and some of the Dutch groups. So it's important that we look at it. So a practice that has grown popular in recent years that is related clearly to sacramentalism, which is unbiblical and unconfessional, is peta communion. This is the idea that covenant infants and little toddlers, and we're talking about, you know, they don't have teeth yet, and they, they don't, know their left hand from the right hand, should be served communion because they are baptized members of the church. This view is largely based on their understanding of the original Passover, Passover, their understanding, and I think they're wrong, their rejection of the Reformed and biblical distinction between non-communicate and communicant membership. Okay, the Federal Vision, for example, they don't believe that a distinction should be made between the visible and the invisible church. They think everybody should be treated as they as if they're part of the invisible church. And that's just simply nonsense. A lot of people who are baptized never show signs of being a Christian. So, you know, that's just an obvious fact. And they, they tend to deny that and come up with all kinds of excuses. While space does not permit a full exegetical refutation of this position, I, I have a, a monograph, a paper on it that I, that I put out. It's on, the, it's on my website. I put it out 20 years ago reformedonline.com. There are a number of reasons why this view must be rejected as unscriptural. First, the Lord's Supper is not a one-time initiatory rite like baptism. You're baptized once, and only once. Baptism is a sign and seal of regeneration, which is a, 
act of God on the heart in which the recipient is passive. Everybody's dead and trespasses and sins. Nobody understands the truth. And the Holy Spirit comes along and some are regenerated due to their union with Christ and his death and resurrection, Romans chapter 6 and other places. But not everybody's regenerated. Only some people are. To receive baptism, all a baby needs, according to Scripture, is to, uh, is to have one parent who is a professing Christian. 1 Corinthians 7.14, where Paul says explicitly that even if there's one parent that's a, a, a believer in the church, uh, God says their children are holy, they're set apart. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they're saved, necessarily. It means that they're set apart, they're part of the visible church. And then, of course, Acts 2.39, where the promise is to, not only to you, you covenant people, but also the promise extends to your children. The baby does not need to understand what is going on because baptism, like circumcision, is a sign and seal of what can happen in the past. John the Baptist was regenerated while he was in the womb, and when Christ came into the room, he leaped for joy. Remember that? Well, that's because he was regenerated already. He wasn't even born yet, and he was regenerated. Of course, it's a great proof text against abortion, isn't it? Uh, so it could happen before baptism, and it can happen, for most people, it happens after baptism. For example, adult converts. So it can even take place in the future. Many covenant children are converted years after their baptism. Some never know when they are converted. They always grow up believing in Christ, as young as they know. They don't know a time when they didn't believe. Some don't believe, and then they, there comes a time when they profess faith. Um, there are people who are raised strict Christians who don't become Christians until they're in their 30s and 40s. I think that, that happened with uh, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham. Now, what kind of Christian he is, if he's an Armenian, we'd have to put an asterisk next to that. <clears throat> so it's a sign and seal of what can happen in the past or the future. The Lord's Supper, however, is a repeated ordinance that along with the word faith, self-examination according to Scripture, and the work of the Holy Spirit is used for current spiritual growth and progress, progressive sanctification. It's repeated over and over and over again. And you're going to have the Holy Supper until you die. Progressive sanctification requires what? Knowledge of Scripture. Understanding of what Jesus did, understanding of Scripture and what Jesus did, self-examination according to the Bible, 1 Corinthians 11, and faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews. Without faith, you can't be sanctified. Baptism points to initial sanctification, that is, your first setting apart unto God in the visible church, and incorporation, while holy, the Holy Supper is used for maturation and strengthening. And here's what Calvin says. And by the way, I, I didn't take time. I Look at my paper. If you look at the early reformers and you look at all the creeds and confessions, they're totally anti-Pato communion, all of them. Here's what Calvin says. This is from his Institutes. Quote, Self-examination ought to come first, and it is vain to expect this of infants. End of quote. A baby or toddler cannot discern the Lord's body, 1 Corinthians 11, and certainly cannot remember what they have learned about the Savior's sacrificial death. And the, the command to remember is part of 
the Gospels and Corinthians. For these reasons, all the Reformed symbols reject paid communion and make a distinction between membership and communicate membership. And the larger catechism is especially good on this stuff. Um, it's really, really good. Okay, let me, I, I, I have it written down here. <coughs> the Westminster Standards, which are explicitly anti-Peta communion, and we find that Confession of Faith 29, 1, 3, 7, and 8, Shorter Catechism, question 91, 96, 97, Larger Catechism, question 170, 171, 172, 174, 175, 177. So the standard Reformed position, and we're talking about the German Reformed, the Dutch Reformed, uh, the Presbyterians, the Puritans, briefly stated, is that the elements of the Lord's Supper are only to be received by church members who are old enough to examine themselves and receive the elements by faith. That's the position of the Reformed churches. So if you deny that, you're unconfessional and unbiblical, which is, you know... <clears throat> A baby or toddler cannot discern the Lord's body and certainly cannot remember. Second, the paedo-communion position assumes a sacramentalist position. That grace is conveyed automatically somehow with faith, without faith or understanding. Well, you'll say, well, what about baptism? Well, baptism, you become a member of the visible church, and you have the privileges that come along with being a member of the visible church with Christian parents who are going to pray for you and read the Bible to you and so forth, and who are going to take you to church and have good preaching. And they promise when you're baptized to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So there's visible things that come with that that you, even though you're a baby, are very important. But that's, the Lord's Supper is different. You have to understand what's going on because you're commemorating the death of Christ. The sacramentalist view, logically, the idea of giving bread and wine to babies, it, it, of logical necessity rests upon a materialistic, magical, mystical, irrational understanding of the Lord's Supper. And what they generally do, I've seen them do this, uh, they take a piece of bread, they take some wine, and they mix the bread and the wine together and make kind of a mush, and then they give it to the baby. And that's supposed to help the baby be sanctified. Uh, when the baby doesn't, couldn't care less. Bread and wine by themselves cannot sanctify anyone apart from an understanding of the word and faith. Paedocommunionist writers accuse the confessional position of being baptistic and individualistic. Yet God himself in his own law restricted the Passover to adult males and their uh, successfully catechized sons. Now, I didn't have time to get to it today. I, I need to include this, but the Lord's Supper obviously includes women who are believers. And uh, Exodus 12, 43 to 48, 23, 14 to 19, 34, 18, 25, Numbers 1, 3, 26, 6, 22, 6, Proverbs 22, 6, 2 Chronicles 30, 7, 8, and Luke 2, 41. Perhaps that is why the Jewish Talmud compiled in A.D. 200 did not allow boys to participate in the Passover until age 13. In the days of Jesus, the boys apparently started attending the feast at the age of 12, Luke 2.41. Now, a full consideration of pentacommunion is beyond the purview of this um, short study. That's why you can go on my website and read my, I have a whole lengthy thing on pentacommunion, where I deal with all their arguments in detail. 
Some of the conclusions of my more in-depth study are as follows. First, regarding their chief proof text of the Pada Communionists, which is the original Passover, note the following considerations. Number one, the original Egyptian Passover took place in the homes of Hebrews. That is absolutely true. The localized nature of the original Passover, however, was temporary and extraordinary. The permanent requirements for the Passover are found in God's law and are revealed in subsequent Old Covenant historical examples. Okay, so that first one, yes, it was in the home. But once they get to Judea, once they get to the Promised Land, they, they didn't practice the Passover in the wilderness. Uh, it's restricted. It'll be restricted to the the feast, the big feast they would have. Two, while the original original participants of the first Passover within the home are not specified, the immediate context restricts the meal to circumcised Jews, their circumcised servants and strangers, that is foreigners, who submit to circumcision, that is, that, in other words, they've converted to the true religion, they're professing, professing believers, and they want to keep the Passover, Exodus 12, 42 to 49. Even the original Passover, which was unique in a number of ways, does not offer support to infant and toddler communion, because infants would not be able to consume roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. Now let me ask you, and you, you women out there, <laughs> you women out there, well some of you haven't had babies, but you women out there know, what do you give little babies? And what do they feed babies probably to the age of three in ancient Palestine? Breast milk. Breast milk. They weren't giving them chunks of lamb and bitter herbs, and unyeasted bread, which is pretty tough. They didn't have teeth. So this idea that they were giving the, the, the Passover to infants, it's just a fantasy. It's not based on scripture at all. They were having breast milk. And then, um, number three, God's law teaches that the permanent Passover was not to be celebrated locally in the home, but rather in Jerusalem near God's house. Deuteronomy 16, 2 and 5 to 7. Number four, the command to keep the Passover in Jerusalem applied only to male members of the nation. And that is males who were successfully catechized and reached puberty. Exodus 23, 14 to 19, 34, 18 to 25, Numbers 1, 3 and 22, 6, Proverbs 22, 6, Luke 2, 4, 41. The Jews didn't even give it to babies and infants. And that's what, so they're, they're, the problem is, is that when they teach this stuff, most people don't know their Bibles all that well, and most people don't know church history that well, and they just eat it all up, because it sounds like, oh, you're denying your children some special blessing. Well, if they don't have faith, bread and wine don't do anything. You have to understand it for it to sanctify. Number five, God made special provisions in the law for keeping the Passover at a different time, a month after the regular Passover for men who were ritually unclean or away on a long journey. Numbers 9, 6 to 12. These provisions would no, be of no use whatsoever to the majority of women who are unclean already as a result of their menstrual cycle. Okay, that's why it was, Passover was restricted to men and sons in the Old Testament. Lord's Supper, no. Lord's Supper, you got women and girls who are professed. Number six, faith and repentance toward God are prerequisites for participating in the Passover. Second Chronicles 37 to 8. 
The Passover, like the Lord's Supper, is an ordinance connected with progressive sanctification and thus requires faith and understanding. The Paedo-Communionist understanding of the Passover presupposes a Romanist, ex opere operato, mystical, magical understanding of the feast. You have to say that. How are they benefiting if they don't know what's going on? How are they benefiting? Unless you believe it's some kind of magical thing. And then number seven. Jesus likely attended the first Passover at the age of 12, Luke 2.41. Eight. Our Lord and his apostles participated in the last Passover without their families in Jerusalem according to God's, in accordance with God's law. Matthew 26, 26 to 29, Luke 22, 17 to 20, Mark 14, 22 to 25. In addition, they, as we have noted already, they must ignore Paul's clear teaching regarding the Holy Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says you have to examine yourself. What is a baby supposed to examine himself about? He doesn't know what's going on. Their presuppositions which are derived from their errors regarding the original Passover and their, their version of covenant theology, the so-called objectivity of the covenant, cause them to ignore perspicuous biblical requirements. In addition, their position <coughs> is driven by a sacramentalist understanding of the sacraments. The post-apostolic church did not embrace Peta communion at all until after the 3rd century due to the rise of an ex opare operato understanding of the sacraments. So for 300 years it wasn't practiced at all in the ancient church. Then all of a sudden it's practiced. Why was it practiced? Because it became sac a lot most of them became sacramentalist. And if it's got a mystical magical thing in it, if it's really got the body and blood of Christ and that automatically sanctifies you, it, it doesn't matter whether you know what's going on or not. It works like taking a, if you gave a sleeping pill to a baby, he'd fall asleep. It works automatically. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It was later abandoned in the Western churches due to their fear that infants and toddlers would mishandle the elements. The, reform, the reformers and the authors of the Reformed creeds and confessions emphatically rejected Pada communion. They just, they totally rejected it. Now, I'll just give you a few more things, because I, and then we'll, we'll quit for today, because I don't want to go into too much detail about this. <clears throat> the command to appear before the Lord, that is to make a pilgrimage to the central sanctuary, only applied to male members of the nation. This command likely applied to all those 20 years of age who had been included in the census, Numbers 1-3, as well as boys who had been successfully catechized, Proverbs 22-6. They were at least 12 to 13 years of age, Luke 2-21. So this requirement teaches us that, A, the circumstances of the original Egyptian Passover were extraordinary. They did not continue into the permanent Passover, and I don't think you can say that even the original Passover infants were taking eating lamb and bread and bitter herbs, which... It's unlikely. I guess. I guess you could chop up the lamb really fine. Um, B. The original Passover narrative does not explicitly specify that women, girls, and young boys participated in the meal. Such a view has always been inferred from the term household, or simply assumed. Interpreters who believe that females and young boys did not eat the bitter herbs and roasted lamb often appeal to the question. 
Exodus 12.26. What do you mean by this service? As evidence that small children were observers rather than direct recipients of the roasted lamb. Exodus 12.26 does not give evidence that the child himself partook. We're talking little children. The question, what mean ye by this service, would seem to indicate that the child, asking this question of the mundicators, was not one of the partakers. The absence of an explicit command in connection with the Passover is more likely to support the fact that the children were not included. And this interpretation has support from Joshua 4.6, where almost identical language is used to describe children inquiring about an act in which they do not participate. Here's Joshua 4.4-5. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? The act is the carrying of the stones out of the river Jordan to set up a memorial in a promised land. The stones were carried by a man from each tribe. Later on, the children would ask, What does that mean? And I think we'll stop there. Um, I, it's one of those things where uh, to really defend the biblical position, you have to go into a ton of detail and exegete a bunch of Old Testament passages. And I don't want to take the time to do that. I've already done that, well, 20 years ago. But look at my look at my paper on Peta Communion. Uh, it's on my website, performedonline.com, and, and read it. Because the Peta Communion position is built on a bunch of presuppositions. Uh, and it's really the foundation of it is sacramentalism a denial of the distinction between the visible and invisible church, a denial of the distinction between communicant and non-communicant members. They don't believe there's such a thing as a non-communicant member. Everybody's a communicant member. And that's just simply nonsense. That, that does not comport with the Reformed churches. It does not comport with the ancient churches. So we'll stop there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Holy Supper. We ask you to cause us to appreciate it more, to reflect upon it more, to examine ourselves properly when we come to the table and eat in a manner as co faithful covenant keepers so that we do not receive your judgment or chastisement for being uh, unrepentant and uncareful. We thank you so much for it in Jesus' name. Amen.